So, uh, good evening. The, the uh, physicist uh, Niels Bohr said, um, the universe is so constructed that the opposite of a true statement is a false statement, but the opposite of a profound truth is usually another profound truth. And um, Suzuki Roshi offered a couple profound truths. Said, um, each of you is perfect the way you are, and you can use a little improvement. <laughs> Made me think of um, kind of therapeutic world, uh, specifically dialectical behavior therapy, and um, just developed the interest of of, um, treating severe emotional dysregulation and um, kind of at at the core of this is the the dialectic of radical acceptance and change. Radical acceptance and change and on this path, we are, um, we really are accepting ourselves and we really are changing ourselves. And some people are all about change, all about change. I'm changing myself. And when that happens, our life our practice can become a kind of relentless self-improvement project. And um, others are all about acceptance. And the ego resists even when the world is begging them to change. We need both. Now, we don't change ourselves in order to accept ourselves. Yeah? That's a dead end in itself. We don't change ourselves in order to accept ourselves. I I remember some years ago on on a Spring Insight Retreat, Brian spoke about... um, sort of entering the the monastery, his years years as a monastic, and um, a kind of some underlying fantasy would be like, yeah, I'm going to fix some brokenness by accumulating spiritual experience. We accept ourselves now. We do not 
make stipulations that change must happen in order for us to be worthy. And um, we also, we don't um, get into this mode of uh, kind of accepting ourselves momentarily so that we can change, yeah? That kind of like equanimity bartering that you've been doing. We know. know, But you know that moment of just like, all right, I'll give you three widgets of equanimity and you, universe, better get your act together. Like, soon. We, we actually really accept ourselves, which really means, um, it really means opening our heart to the past. It really means blessing all that has been with wisdom and love. It really means like to appreciate the totality of conditions that culminate now. And in that culmination is what you call you, too. And it's like, yes, this is so. This I can, uh, I can bless. And so we really accept ourselves and we really uh, are open to change, to know that uh, the potential of our hearts are not really fathomable certainly not as we enter this path. It's not really, we can't exactly imagine the ways in which we might be free. And so we can grow and we do grow on this path. Acceptance, change. In a a 1961 paper, um, uh, Maslow, there's a short essay about about peak experience, said, um, the the goal of self-actualization seems to be simultaneously an end goal in itself and also a transitional goal a rite of passage, a step along the path to the transcendence of identity. This is like saying its function is to erase itself. Self-actualization, the kind of development of, of the self, the 
the changes that we make, they are, um, yeah, the alignment and coherence and peace that we develop, it's an end in itself. It's an end in itself. And it points to something greater. It erases itself and points to something greater. The self-cultivation we do erases itself and points to something greater. And I read that and... um, And I had the thought, freedom is an end goal, and it erases itself and points to something else. Maybe we even say enlightenment erases itself and points to something else. What what does it point to? I, I think it points to love. Mostly, um, awakening is about um, what's absent. What what's been relinquished. The Buddhist path is primarily framed in the negative. What, what, what is relinquished? What is absent? But it's also about what's present. Um, and when the self is not a preoccupation, what is left what is left in the absence of self is everything else. And the love born of that becomes um, the very natural love. Over time, um, as as the kind of egoic drama settles and we we stop trying to be something a lot of love is freed up in that kind of chemical reaction a lot of love is freed up uh, because um Hatred and its siblings, that requires clinging, but um, love depends on nothing but awareness. The uh, philosopher Levinas said, um, to recognize the other is to recognize a hunger. To recognize the other is to give. From this perspective, um, to say um, 
something like, um, I see you, I see you. It's pretty close to saying, uh, I love you. And we've been cultivating this quality of attention whereby just in the looking, in the seeing, um, it's not like you have to add some major channel of love. It's just in the looking. To look deeply is to love. We're um, we're developing um, a practice that feels very natural, does not feel like pretend. You just never want to really pretend in your practice because um, it it erodes our trust in ourselves and the path. And um, practice is, is meant to feel natural, maybe very hard, but natural, authentic. And, um, you know, we hear so much about um, kind of choice in mindfulness, like we choose to respond rather than react. But I don't really notice that I make better choices. It's more like my options are much better. That's what's changed. The menu options have changed. It's more like um, we don't really find ourselves backed into the same karmic corners where there's dukkha in every direction. And so we're like building, you know, building a dharma life, nurturing a dharma heart, such that we don't need to be exerting our willfulness all the time to stay out of trouble. It's really not a kind of state-based practice. Yeah. Meaning it's not about momentary states. It's really um, about traits. Yeah. Traits. And traits don't need effort to be maintained. Yeah. Traits don't need effort to be maintained. And so it can seem like, um, you know, we're reaching for samadhi and uh, the unification of the mind or reaching for insight or something, but those really matter, those momentary states matter because they change the set point of our traits. And um, 
we're really integrating moments, moments, states into traits. Joseph, um, Joseph Goldstein said, um, uh, in the context of another conversation, said, um, an experience is not a path. An experience is not a path. A, a moment, a state, is not a path. We're actually nurturing our own hearts such that um, it congeals into a kind of trait, a tendency. And I would say we're developing uh, the, the trait of love. You know, I sometimes think about about love as um, like our nervous system just longing for the Dhamma. It's just too hard without it, too intense being human without love. So we look where where does our mind uh, rest? What's the default position of our attention? Where where do we live? Where do we live our life? Where do we take up residence in the sphere of sensory experience? What feels like home base? And this is why we're encouraging to blanket the day with awareness for the same reason like Sayadaw Tejaniya said, um, you know, when we have these big gaps of awareness in during the day, it's like reading the even-numbered chapters of a book, yeah? And we actually need to see the whole causal process. We need to see how things build and intensify and collapse we want to see all of this. And so, yeah, it was said, it was said that like uh, where the mind goes after meditation, after the bell rings, is maybe more important than where it goes during the sit. Uh, because the, the, the default position of our attention, the familiarity of the stories lodged there, those we take to be, it's like so intimate and cozy that it feels like the Matthew within Matthew. And I just like retreat back into that corner of self. But we want to look. It's just more phenomena arising and passing. And that place, that default position, the place where we live tends to be a kind of heavy mixture of self-referential thought and curating the image we have of ourselves, curating what, how people construe us, standing guard, in a way, at the gates of self. And in this 
this place, this default position of our attention, anicca, an uncertainty, unreliability grips us, and we're little me contending with the enormous forces of the universe. And the, the best way that we know how to manage the radical uncertainty of any moment is to, um, to worry, to simulate futures, to imagine scenarios, to try to govern samsara with our thoughts. And so it has this feeling of like little me back there contending with a Nietzsche and the, this enormous world. And some of that is no doubt adaptive. It's been conserved across evolutionary time. It's useful and we have probably, you know, dramatically overestimated the effectiveness of worry. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that was funny, but there, there you go. Um, so, um, the Buddhist question is like, where else might the mind rest when it's not doing things? Where else might it return to? Uh, something like quiet love. Yeah. The, the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, Vihara, home, shelter, dwelling. And so, as we've been exploring, metta, loving-kindness, is really one way of construing it is like, it's love in the face of goodness. And karuna, compassion, is love in the face of suffering. Mudita, sympathetic joy, love in the face of happiness and equanimity, love in the face of the ungovernable, endless nature of samsara. These um, places of dwelling are meant to be varied enough so that one of them is often a very good resting place. One of them is often, they're varied enough that one of them is a good resting place. And no matter what is happening in the moment, no matter what, how life is constellating in the moment, one of these is a useful place for the mind to rest. One of these forces is medicine. And so a birth or a death, a marriage or a divorce, uh, a peace or a war. One of the Brahmaviharas has your back. 
Now this this love dimension of the path, this this sense of oh yeah, our mind can rest in some mixture there is um inextricably linked to the wisdom, these two two wings of awakening, wisdom and compassion, or some Thich Nhat Hanh's language was was understanding and love. In fact, uh, Thay, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said, um, understanding is love's other name. And the more insight we develop into this human realm, the more insight we develop into the, the characteristics of this realm, dukkha, anicca, anatta, suffering or unsatisfactoriness, un- uncertainty, unreliability, impermanence, and anatta, not self, the more insight we develop into those characteristics of existence, the more love gets freed up. The more love gets freed up in that development. But first, we often, before the three characteristics become insight, we grieve the three characteristics. Yeah. On, in, their, in their maturation in our own heart, before they become insight, we often have to grieve them. And... Um, You know, I've said enough about uh, about dukkha, but um, just that in the Burmese tradition, I heard a, a teacher say that um, um, that just before a person breaks through to final enlightenment, the the agony of the the suffering of the world often knocks them over yeah we have to um to open to dukkha involves a, a kind of measure of grieving and highlights the necessity of love And to open to change anicca, the changingness of all things, um, that takes all of us, you know, like that takes all of our heart to open to anicca that is at once so obvious and simultaneously utterly startling. Just how deeply the mind depends, acclimatizes to the assumption of stability. As a kid, I could, um, I can remember kind of like feeling life slipping 
between my fingers. And I just wanted badly just to hold the world still. And it just keeps running through. It doesn't matter whether we hold on or we let go. It keeps running through. And, um, you know, I still, after all these years of practice, I'm, I'm sure it, it, it's only in the wake of, of loss and the jarring character of Anicca that we realize the fullness of our assumption of permanence. And even still in my life, as I've tried to open to this, I still, you know, have, I'm kind of like just in my routines, in my preference for familiarity, all these things, it's like still maybe trying that childhood fantasy of holding the world still. And yet it trembles in all directions. This world world trembles in all directions. So some words from uh, Catherine Schultz um, I've been thinking about often when it was published a book recently, Lost and Found, the story of losing her father, finding the woman she married. And um, she writes, um, this is the essential avaricious nature of loss. It encompasses without distinction the trivial and the consequential, the abstract and the concrete, the merely misplaced and the permanently gone. We often ignore its true scope if we can, but for a while after my father died, I could not stop seeing the world as it really is, marked everywhere by the evidence of past losses and the imminence of future ones. This was not because his death was a tragedy. My father died peacefully at 74, tended throughout his final weeks by those he loved most. It was because his death was not a tragedy. What shocked me was that something so sad could be the normal, necessary way of things. In its aftermath, each individual life seemed to contain too much heartbreak for its fleeting duration. History, which I had always loved even in its silences and mysteries, seemed like little more than a record of loss on an epic scale, especially where it could offer no record at all. The world itself seemed ephemeral, glaciers and species and ecosystems vanishing, the pace of change as swift as in a time lapse, as if those of us alive today had been permitted to see it from the harrowing perspective 
of eternity. Everything felt fragile. Everything felt vulnerable. The idea of loss pressed in all around me like a hidden order to existence that had emerged only in the presence of grief. It takes time for the heart to acclimatize to a Nietzsche. And there's a blessing in it too. There's blessing in it. There's blessing in it when the ego is indeed all out of moves and the groundlessness of experience is so present. The Buddha wanted us to understand And the natta, um, sometimes we, we associate the teaching on emptiness, empty, emptiness of self with something dry or um, even self-denying, you know. Like, oh yeah, the, 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 there's the love side and then there's this wisdom, not self side or something, but... Um, Insight into emptiness frees up love in many different ways. Yeah. Like, it frees up love in many ways. So, first we say there's no tension whatsoever between this teaching on not-self and a gentle, loving, tender appreciation for oneself. Um, uh, really, I would say that um, self-love is an expression of non-clinging. Yeah? It's not that self-love is some new, better way of defining and holding to a view of the self. It's not exchanging one form of clinging in self-hatred for another in self-love. Self-love is an expression of non-clinging, of acceptance. What we started with, that deep acceptance. Or maybe we could say anatta is the deepest form of self-esteem. It's the safest form of self-esteem. It's the most resilient form of self-esteem, the most stable. And um, I associate the teaching on anatta not with like capturing or obliterating the self, but with aliveness and spontaneity 
and being unencumbered and the juiciness of um, of our conditioning and our personality that is freed of the kind of strictures of of uh, of uh, of self view and so we are social animals with social needs and um, that can turn the world into a kind of stage. Sociologist uh, Goffman said, all the world is not a stage, of course. All of the world is not, of course, a stage, but the crucial ways in which it isn't are not easy to specify. goes on to say, choose your self-presentations carefully for what starts out as a mask may become your face. And in a sense, like the performance, the performance of self, it's a kind of argument. I'm sort of making an argument to you, to myself, to whatever internal spectator audience we might have. I'm making an argument about my value or worthiness in one way or another. And that's all right, but then we can confuse our mask for who we are. And then in Buddhist practice, we go even deeper to say not merely you are not your mask, but you are not even your face. Yeah. The, the the assumption we have, how deep the assumption runs of um, I am me, you know. It seems that's the one thing that Descartes didn't doubt, yeah. But... Um, that sense of this moment fits into who I was, who I will be, my autobiography, um, that needs investigation. And what we find is that clinging to, clinging to an autobiography in this way, clinging to a view of self, identifying experiences and and feeling like they point back to the Matthew within Matthew, that is very fertile ground for suffering. Clinging always uh, obstructs love. Clinging always obstructs love. And sometimes we don't have a choice. We just have to cling. But we want to know in our Dharma heart that um, a lot, a lot of love is freed up as we release the clenched fist of grasping. Because if you, if you claim territory, you become territorial. And so we stand guard vigilantly at the gates of self. 
patrolling. And the hallmark, the hallmark of ego is defensiveness. You claim territory, I am, you become territorial. And many, many of our most like painful emotions, the emotions that are not love, um, they, they kind of illuminate the architecture of self-view. Yeah? In seeing how envy and self-hatred and arrogance and self-righteousness in shame, in seeing how all of this, these states of non-love function, we start to actually see the ideas of self that we revere, the things that we think make us of value. And there's a way in which um, there's just so much moralism bound up in our self, the way we build our self. It's like glued together with moralism. Yeah. Of like these shoulds that who, who knows where we even got them. And sometimes, you know, I'm sitting with somebody who's in some kind of um, spasm of self-related pain, yeah? And, um, yeah, it's just like, I sit there and I just feel like so unintimidated by their stories of self-blame or whatever, yeah? Because from the outside, the, the identification, it's so obvious. It's like all I'm seeing is not, not self, not self, not self. And they might be caught, yeah? But it's like their pain is not intimidating because I... No, it's empty. It's empty. And so we try to work with these points of identification, and at some point we become unconvinced by our autobiography and the cozy tales of I amness that are, are so intimate to us that they are unquestioned. We become, start to become, it's not like we reject the autobiography, it just feels like remote and we feel alienated from it. We're no longer like debating the truth or falsity of it, it's just like a million miles from whatever I am. And so um, when, um, when the self is empty, love um, 
becomes more and more natural. The, the ground, the conditions for territoriality and defensiveness and uh, shame just have been uh, a, undercut, yeah? And what gets released in that process is like a sense of this very carefree kind of spirit. Very spontaneous, very porous to the world. Unintimidated by the joy of others. Unintimidated by suffering but very responsive. We start to see ourself in others deeply. We start to see them in us. And that, that sense of um, what, what is shared runs deep. And so what else is there to do other than love in one way or another? You get down to it, the, uh, the alternatives to, uh, to love, you know, hatred, or apathy is not tenable. And, um, and so there are details to be worked out for sure. But uh, what else are we going to do? What else is possibly compatible with the ease of our own heart, our nervous system? And yeah, we need rest. We need rest. The heart at some moments needs to be unstimulated. We call that equanimity. And then we zigzag our way through the boisterousness of love, the silence of equanimity, caring and not caring, as T.S. Eliot says. And then... uh, We feel, um, yeah, just like our life 
what we call our life is just supported by this web of, uh, of care, of love. Sit for a moment. So thank you for your uh, your attention and um, it's kind of wild, you know, like just feeling as we talk in groups or one-on-one, like that's, I have to say one, I had to give one talk to a hundred people tonight. That's like criminally negligent. (laughs) Because I would never, never want to say the same thing to each of you. And so then it becomes your job to uh, assimilate whatever belongs in your heart and to... uh, Leave all the rest behind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.